all of us experience loss. And we experience loss at various levels. In the past week, my family has experienced the loss of two family members. I've had an older cousin of mine pass away with cancer. And then I've had a great aunt pass away with COVID-19. And so we experience loss. We've actually grieved not being able to gather together as a family. For my older cousin who passed away, I took his wife's funeral just about 18 months ago. And now I'm unable to take his funeral with the family gathering to celebrate his life. I would have maybe even taken my great aunt's funeral. And again, we're unable to gather to celebrate her life. And we all experience loss and loss at various levels. Sometimes it's not loss in the ultimate form of death. Sometimes it's the loss of a relationship. Sometimes it's a loss of financial security. Sometimes it's the loss of a friendship. Sometimes it's the loss of an ability, maybe with a disease we've faced or even with age, we're unable to be as musical, as athletic, as mechanical as we once were. And we experience these, these losses, loss in productivity. Even as I age, I'll turn 49 later this year. I feel some of the loss of the energy levels I know I had in my late 20s and early 30s. And we can begin to grieve the losses that we experience. And then sometimes there's even more loss. There's loss that can come because of suffering. Sometimes that suffering as a Christian can take the form of persecution. And sometimes it takes the form of ailments. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us that suffering is not without purpose. He says this, Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And so we know that our suffering has purpose. One of the purposes is to make us more like Christ. The other is to point us to hope, to grant us hope in Christ. And so we come to Judah again, back to the book of Lamentations, where as we look at the book of Lamentations, we're reminded that God's people, because of their sin, have been punished by him. And that God's people have been desolated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians had come in, they had looted, they had ransacked, they had taken everything. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the wall, they destroyed the homes, and they took thousands of people out into exile, hundreds of kilometers from their homes, and there Judah went. And now Jeremiah, the prophet writing the book of Lamentations, is grieving, is grieving the loss he sees, is grieving the suffering he sees, is grieving what he sees in terms of the experience all around him and the incredible anguish that his soul is going through. But he's reminded of the character of God. In Lamentations 3, verses 31 and 32, Jeremiah writes, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. And so God's unfailing love, which is founded in his character and very nature, reminds him that the Lord will not harbor his anger forever, that he will not be cast off forever. He will show compassion. So I flip into Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4 is a fascinating chapter. Throughout it, God reminds Israel that they put other things before him. The first commandment was this. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no idols before me, no other gods before me. And an idol is anything that you place before God. It's anything that you turn into an ultimate thing. It could be a hobby. It could be a relationship. It could be an achievement of some kind. It could be your academics. 
It could be anything that you place as an ultimate thing. Tim Keller describes it this way. Any idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, that thing, your life would feel hardly worth living. And so there are times when I've watched people go through the devastation of job loss, where not only have they experienced the financial difficulties and some of the personal difficulties in terms of loss of self-identity, and but they've actually been devastated. They've moved to a place of incapacity. They're unable to continue to move forward. Sometimes it's someone losing a hobby. Sometimes it's someone losing a pet as a pet passes away. And people are incapacitated by the loss. Sometimes it's the loss of a friendship or relationship. And in all those things, we should grieve. In all those things, as we experience loss, we should lament. But if in that loss, we feel like life is hardly worth living, we've placed our hope in the wrong thing. Our hope should be in God, whom we will never lose. So he explains a few of the losses they've experienced. In verse 1 of chapter 4, how the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. Of course, if the Babylonians came through, they ransacked, they looted, they took all the treasures they could with them. And now there's no commerce in the city. Jerusalem's empty of commerce, it's empty of trade. There's no one there to bring their goods and there's no goods to sell. And so they've lost their financial security. They've lost their comfort, verses four, five, and nine. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die by famine. Racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. In fact, Jeremiah says, is it even better that they died by the sword of the Babylonians than to die now by suffering and famine? They've lost all their comforts. They can't feed their children. The delicacies that the aristocrats enjoyed are gone. And the riches of the palace have also been taken. So the comforts are gone. Family's gone. Verse 10, with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Some of these women, as they saw the devastation going on around them, even took their own children as they were dying and cooked them so they could feed their other children, so they could feed their family and live. There was a study done just a few years ago, back in 2008, and it looked at 141 countries from 2081, or 1981, sorry, uh, to 2002. And it looked at why in devastating catastrophes, there was always more male survivors than female. And they found out that it was by 14 times in these 141 countries, consistently across the board. There were a number of factors for it, Sometimes it was physical stamina. Um, but one of the recurring themes was a woman's love for her child and how women more often than men would sacrifice their own lives in the midst of a catastrophe to shield and save their children. And so here, when we come to verse 10 and we find that women are cooking one of their children to save the lives of their family, you see the incredible reversals of everything that is held dear, of the whole moral compass that's altered because of the devastation that's happened. So you can't put your hope in your family, in, in, in comfort, in finances. 
They put their hope in their spiritual leaders. Verse 13. But this happened because of the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of the priests, who shed within her the blood of the righteous. You can't pin your hopes on leaders because leaders sin. And some leaders fall. You can't pin your hopes on your friends. Verse 17. Moreover, our eyes failed. We looked in vain for help. From our towers we watched for a nation that could save us. They said, we looked to our allies. Who would come and defend against the Babylonians? Who would come to our aid? And no one came. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've been in a situation and your closest friends abandoned you. I'm not saying you shouldn't grieve that. But if they were your idol, that devastating loss would bring you to a place where you would be unable to continue on and you've replaced God with them. Same with security. People stalked us at every step so we could not walk in our streets. And I know people who've been utterly devastated. They picked the safest neighborhood, got themselves the best alarm system, found themselves neighbors that will watch their home. And when their house is broken into, the devastation, the ramifications of the effect. Now again, not that we shouldn't grieve those things, but if that is our idol, if that is our God, when that occurs, it will be as if we've lost everything. Our political leaders. Verse 20, the Lord's anointed, our life, very life breath was caught in their traps. He's talking about the king here. We thought that under his shadow, we would live among the nations. We thought that the king couldn't fall. He was the most protected man, Zedekiah. Surely he wouldn't fall. And when he fell, they knew the nation was in trouble. You see, God will strip us of all of our idols because he wants to be the preeminent one in our lives. He wants to be God and God alone. He longs for us to have no other gods before him. That's no other idols before him. Tim Keller said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Our hope is to be God in God and him alone. So chapter 5, verse 1. Now the people call out, remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. There are three people that we see talked through the book of Lamentations. The city itself of Jerusalem is personified, Zion. The prophet speaks and the people speak. So remember, Lord, what's happened to us. God, don't forget us. God, don't forget our disgrace. God, we need you. And then again, they lament the atrocities that have occurred, even though they're the consequences of their own sin. Our inheritance, that's their land. God, what you gave us, it's been turned over to strangers, verse 2. Our homes have gone to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. The men are gone. We must buy the water we drink, the water that you gave us, God. Now we have to purchase our own water. The food can only be had at a price. Sorry, our wood can only be had at a price. We, the, the wood, our trees, we have to pay for. Slaves will rule over us. Women have been violated in Zion. Virgins in the town of Judah. There's assault happening. They were masters, now they're slaves. Princes have been hung up by their hands. The royalty has been eliminated. Young men toil at the millstones. Those that should be in higher positions are now just working slave labor. Boys are staggering under loads of wood. The elders have gone from the city gate. We no longer have the wisdom keepers. They have been killed off and they're no longer able to rule. The young men have stopped their music. There's no longer dancing or music. The joy is gone from our hearts. You ever felt that way? As you've been grieving loss, maybe as you've been grieving even through COVID-19, 
the loss in some of the social distancing of seeing friends, connecting with family. And though we may do so, and we're thankful for that over connections with Zoom and other platforms, we greatly miss being with each other in person. We lament, and lament is the loud cry of pain, of anguish. And we can even lament when our sin has caused that pain and anguish. That's what Jeremiah doing, is doing. The people are crying out, knowing that their own sin has caused this. They're still grieving that their inheritance is gone, that their fathers are gone, that they're paying for their own water and wood, that they're now slave labor, that the princes are gone, the royalty is gone. They're grieving the losses they're experiencing, that their joy is gone, that the music is stopped. Mark Rogop says this, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Belief in God's mercy, redemption, and sovereignty create lament. Without hope in God's deliverance and the conviction that he is all-powerful, there would be no reason to lament when pain invades our lives. He said, you need to remember who God is. As you lament, you're lamenting to the God who is still all-sovereign, who is still all-powerful. You're lamenting to the God who's still in control. The October before Julia Bear died, just two months before she passed away, I was in the hospital with her and Andy to visit. In fact, some of you listening today were there with me, not in the room, but in the waiting room. I remember being there with you. And I went to the room and I was going to pray with Julia and Andy. And I was, I was praying with Julia after a visit. I was praying as I'd always had for the eradication of the cancer from her body. She took my hand, her body was weak, and she stopped me. We were in the Jerevinsky, and she said, Dwayne, she said, you don't need to pray that anymore. You don't need to pray that. She said, what I want you to pray is that I would leave this life and enter into God's presence well. I would just die well. Pray that I would die well. Pray that my witness would be strong. Man, I prayed that for her. And I left that hospital as I walked out and walked to my vehicle to drive home. I remember I was in lament. I was just grieving. I was like, Lord, I don't want her to die. Lord, this isn't what I want to pray right now. Lord, why is she asking you to do this? Lord, I want you to heal her. And it's okay to lament, to come to God with your grief, to cry out to him in your pain. He hears it. But knowing that he's still the all-sovereign one that I come to, whose control is sovereign and full. Gary and Bonnie Witherall were missionaries. Um, they were Moody grads. They went to serve in Lebanon, war-torn Lebanon, back in 2000, 2001. And they were working with the Palestinian refugees there. They specifically worked in a medical clinic, and Bonnie worked with pregnant women. And one morning she had gone to the clinic to work. You may have read this story back in 2002. And a gunman entered the clinic, opened fire, and shot her in the head three times. They called her husband Gary to come to rush to the scene. He got there. And he recounts this kind of rushing. This was his experience as he arrived to find his wife there bleeding out on the floor. Suddenly I was wrenched into a place I could never have imagined. I was forced to fall and fall and fall into this abyss of grief. I was not ready for this. I, I was not given time to prepare for the loss of the one person who lit up my world. Boom! There I was, forced into a world of agony. I did not know I could cry so hard. And so he lamented. He lamented over the loss of his wife. You see, we will always suffer because of sin. Our suffering 
is always a result of sin. Like I said last week, sometimes it's a result of the sin of others, oppression. Sometimes it's a result of the fallenness of our world, the sin of the world that we live in, possibly a pandemic. And sometimes it's due to our very sin. Our own sin is the cause of our suffering. That's what's happening to Judah. Verse 16 of chapter 5. Woe to us, we have sinned. They realize it. All of these consequences they're naming is because of their sin. And yet they still recognize that the God of the universe reigns. Verse 19. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us? Restore us, God, that we may return. Renew our days of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. We need to come to God in our pain, remembering that he is still the sovereign I am and that he is fully in charge of the entire universe. That is our God. And when we've sinned, we still need to recognize his reign. In fact, it's critical. They cry out, you, Lord, you reign forever and your throne, it endures eternally from generation to generation. So they cry out, God, restore us and renew us. That's what we want. We need to remember to bring our pain to God. But we also need to remember that it's God who must reign and not our pain. Some of us come to God in pain and we're letting our pain reign. We're letting the pain that we go through begin to be what takes over our entire life. It preoccupies everything. God needs to preoccupy everything. He is on the throne, not our pain. We need to bring our pain before him. We need to tell him how we're hurting. But we need to recognize powerfully that God is on the throne, not our pain. He is the one reigning not it. William Cowper was a great poet and years ago, um, centuries ago, and uh, he wrote some of the hymns that have been sung for centuries. But he struggled with suicidal thoughts. He attempted suicide. He was placed in the insane asylum. At times he struggled with his security and his salvation. He wrestled with all of those things. And in the midst of some of that pain and suffering, he wrote this, this poem that's been put to song as a hymn. And as he wrote this, he trusted in the sovereign God even in the midst of his pain because he knew that God had to reign, not his pain. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. With the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord, ye feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind, blind belief is sure to err. And, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Our confidence needs to be in him alone. He is the one who reigns, not our pain. But what happens when our loss that we're experiencing 
is because of our sin. What happens when the loss in relationship is due to our own bitterness? What happens when the financial calamity is due to our greed? What happens when the severance of friendship is because of our gossip or our pride or our self-centeredness? What happens when the way we've treated our body is part of the reason why we're suffering now later in life? What happens when our sin is the direct or our suffering is a direct result of our sin? Well, there's a path toward restoration. Lamentations 3, verse 31 and 32 to start. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. We can trust his character. You can trust God. The God who entered time and space in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came and clothed his deity with humanity, who lived a sinless life as the second Adam, who never sinned, who died on the cross for us, taking the wrath of the Father upon himself. That God who would go through that kind of pain and torment and torture, experiencing the wrath of the Father being poured out him and the horrifying crucifixion, the horror of the crucifixion. It was a form of torture developed by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. And as Christ was tortured on the cross and the wrath of the Father was poured on him, he endured a suffering none of us need to. And he suffered like that so he could bring any of us into relationship with him. Anyone who would trust in him, anyone who would believe on him, anyone who would grant him lordship, he would grant sonship. And so as that occurs, we can trust that God. Listen, verse 33 of Lamentations 3. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone, to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny people their rights before the Most High, to deprive them of justice, would not the Lord see such things? God says, I want you to know, I don't willingly bring suffering. I don't willingly bring pain. It's not something that I just long to do. But he said, do you think you can get away before my very sight in the land I've given you to crush the people underfoot, to deny them their rights, to grant such injustice? Did you not think I would see this? God says, I won't ignore your sin. Now that should be good news. It should be good news to us that God won't ignore sin. You see, we like it when God won't ignore other people's sin. We want him to remedy that. We want justice, except when it's our sin. When it's our sin, we'd like God to turn a blind eye. When it's our sin, we'd like God to turn the other way. When it's our sin, we'd like God to ignore it. God only ever always hates sin. He hates sin. And not just the sin of my friends or my family, not just the sin of those that I'm not getting along with right now or that are oppressing me. God also hates my sin. Verse 38, God disciplines his children. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good things come? Why should the living complain when they're punished for their sin? Why should we complain when we're punished for our sin? Our sin was punished by God in the person of Christ took on Christ Christ took on our sin on the cross and took the punishment for us and so God takes sin seriously if that's what Christ had to go through for us to be able to be restored in relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit that work of Christ he takes our sin seriously Hebrews 12 reminds us of this 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you, have not, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You are not true sons and daughters at all. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. God brings discipline to cause us to be Christ-like and allow us to be holy. He disciplines us because he loves us and he knows that the best way for any of us to live is his way. So they offer a plea for forgiveness, verse 40 and following. Examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have rebelled, we have sinned, but you have not forgiven. The people of Judah are saying, we should examine our ways and that's what we should do. We should say to ourselves, ask ourselves, what is the Lord trying to teach me as I lament? Is this because of my sin? Is this because there is sin? Is this because of oppressive sin? And if it's my sin, return to the Lord. Come to him in repentance. Walk with him. Cry out to him, God, I've sinned. God, this is my fault. Verse 43, you've covered yourself with anger. You have pursued us. You have slain without pity. You've covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. We are the scum and refuse of the nations. So streams of tears will flow from my eyes. My people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. We should be grieved over our sin. When was the last time you were grieved over your sin? When was the last time you cried out to God in lament over your sin and said, Oh God, I need to hate this sin. When was the last time you announced it? When was the last time you declared to God, This is my sin and God, I long to hate it. God, help me to hate it. God, I do hate it. And then there's a plea for deliverance. And so I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Don't close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you. You said, do not fear. You, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. So God, I'm in the pit. God, hear my plea. God, I need you. And the Lord redeems our life. You see, Jesus entered in to the pit of our lives. And he stayed there and died so that he could take our feet and place them on a rock. That's what he's done. So he could redeem us. He could buy us back. He would not let our sin stop him from loving us. But the only way that he could love us in spite of our sin was if he took our sin upon himself and died in our stead. That's what he's done. He entered our pit to do that. So I don't know today if your lament is over oppressive sin, if your lament is over the fallenness of sin in the world, if your lament is over your own sin. But come to God with lament and cry out to him, knowing that he is the God of restoration. Let your pain, as you cry out to God, remind you of the promise of who God is and what he's done that will turn your lips to praise. Gary Witherall, in reflection later on upon his wife's death, said this, I had to live in faith that God was in control, that Bonnie was with Jesus and in heaven. I chose to believe the Bible, to believe the God that I knew, and now I needed to trust him. I felt I was being called to lay down everything for him, everything in surrender. And so come to God and lament. Grieve. Cry out to him. 
If it's your own sin, grieve over it. If it's the sin of others, grieve over the oppressiveness that's happening. If it's sin because of, or, 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 or suffering because of the fallenness of the world that we're in, grieve that. But cling to the promises of God, knowing that He is good. And turn to Him in praise. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, O oh God, for your presence and your goodness and grace, your restoring love that allows us to be brought out of the pit we find ourselves in, our feet placed on a rock, and into your redeeming grace. We're thankful for that. So God, today for each of us that are listening to this, may we understand and know your grace, your blessing. May we come to and lament, clinging to your promises, so our lips can be turned to praise, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.